0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I talk with China analyst and author Mark O'Neill about the extraordinary life of Zhang Shuliang, the ruler of Manchuria, who became the world's longest held political prisoner. In 1936, he would kidnap China's nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek for two weeks to force him to cooperate with the communists against the Japanese. Through this action, Zhang Shuliang changed the future of China.
1: Today we are speaking about Zhang Xueliang, a Chinese military general and one of the key figures in Chinese history in, in the 20th century because he was the man that kidnapped Chiang Kai-shek, the national leader, in Xi'an in December 1936. And this event was critical in Chinese history because it led to the communists and the nationalists together fighting the Japanese. But it also ended the eight-year campaign of Chiang Kai-shek to wipe out the communist army. So many people in Taiwan say that the action of this kidnap was the key event that allowed the communists to take power in China, because Chiang Kai-shek said he was a month away from wiping out the communist armies in December 1936. Chiang Kai-shek said the communists are the cancer in China, the Japanese are a superficial wound. What he meant by that was, for him, the real enemy of the communists. The Japanese he could never defeat. He knew that he would need the intervention of an outside force to defeat the Japanese. So his aim was to first wipe out the communists and then deal with the Japanese. But this kidnapping prevented him from doing this. And this is why, after the kidnapping, Zhang Xiu Liang was then put under house arrest in the mainland and then taken by Jiang to Taiwan. And he was under house arrest for 50 years. And only after the death of Chiang Kai-shek was he given a more relaxed form of house arrest. So he is the longest serving political prisoner in history. And many people consider that extremely vengeful by Chiang Kai-shek. But if you look at it from Chiang Kai-shek's perspective, he had good reason for doing that.
0: I was going to say this, this man By this singular action, actually, as you say, changed the future of China and also changed what Chiang Kai-shek envisaged as his own future as the leader of China. So in terms of, if we can take this man, the young marshal, right back to his beginnings, so where is he
1: born and who is he? Well, he was born on the 3rd of June, 1901 in Haicheng in Liaoning province, And he was the eldest son of a man called Zhang Zolin. And Zhang Zolin was the warlord of Manchuria, the three northeastern provinces of China. Now, his father, Zhang Zolin, was a man who was not at all educated. He was a soldier and then through very clever dealings, he rose up in the army, he, he had an army of his own, and he became the warlord of Manchuria, the three northeastern provinces. And these provinces were never really controlled by the central government in China, either the Qing government or the Guomindang government afterwards. So he had much more power there than warlords in other parts of China. So the young man, Zhang Xiu Liang, grew up in great luxury his father built a big palace for himself outside of Shenyang, where he lived. His father had two wives and 14 children. So he grew up in a very privileged background. He was educated by private tutors, through them he learned English. So he had a completely different outlook on the world to his father. His father was a soldier, uh, ill-educated, very rough, tough guy, and his father was Buddhist. Now. As we've discussed before, my, my, my grandfather and his fellow missionaries, they were Presbyterian missionaries in, in northeast China. And in Shenyang, they built a YMCA, which was, which was not far from the palace. And the young Xu Liang liked to play tennis. So he used to go to the, to the YMCA and play tennis. So the missionaries thought, wow, we've we got a chance here. We can convert... The son, the eldest son of the warlord of Northeast China. What a chance. And he was, because of his education and and more Western element of the education, he would have been inclined to convert. His father would never have converted. So, anyway, this was in the mind of the missionaries, and his father found out about it and absolutely did not want this to happen. So, he then introduced a second wife to his son. So um, having two wives, then it, it became impossible to convert. So his father managed to stop that from happening.
0: Ah, I see. So, he had, uh, so at this point, Xu Liang is already married the first time. He now marries a second time. <laughs> we can't have polygamy in Christianity. Ah, that was quite, uh, quite clever of the dad. So they would have been up north in Manchuria. And his upbringing, as you say, is luxurious. So what is his role as a young man?
1: Well, as the eldest son, he is the you know, successor to his father. So his father sends him to the Fengtian Military Academy, which is the Shenyang Military Academy. And after he graduates from the academy, he then joins the Fengtian Army, which is the private army of his father, Zhang Thuolin. But the other leaders of the army don't think very much of him because, of course, he's a spoiled brat and he, he hasn't had anything like the hardship that they've uh, been through. And Manchuria has a very strong presence of the Japanese. They've built the South Manchurian Railway. There are many big Japanese trading companies there. And there's the Japanese Guangdong Army. And they want to take over Manchuria. And they regard his father as too difficult, too stubborn, and not willing to make agreements with them. So... On June the 4th, 1928, Zhang Zoulin is taking a train back from Beijing to Shenyang, and the Japanese put a bomb under a bridge just outside Shenyang. So when the train passes over the bridge, they explode the bomb, and his father is killed. And Zhang Xiu Liang is now only 27, so he becomes the, the ruler. And the plan of the Japanese is that the sun is going to be much more pliable and will do what they want. So they will become the de facto rulers of Manchuria and he'll be like the figurehead leader. But unfortunately, it doesn't turn out like that. He's not willing to do what the Japanese want. And in January of 1929, he invites two Chinese advisors, but they're very pro-Japanese, to a dinner at his house. And during the dinner, he goes out of the dining room for his daily um, morphine injection. And while he's out of the room, the two Japanese advisors, the pro-Japanese advisors, are executed. So, it's his way of telling the Japanese, I'm not going to do what you want.
0: Wow. He didn't mess.
1: Yeah. So, he was also very angry with the Soviet Union. And as you may know, the Soviet Union controlled the Chinese Eastern Railway, which went from Chita and Siberia to Vladivostok but through Heilongjiang. So, he raided the Soviet consulate in Harbin
0: so he was angry with the Russians because they'd just built the railway through Manchuria? or?
1: Well, you know, because they, like the Japanese, had a lot of influence in, in Manchuria, and they had a lot of rights, and they were able to earn a lot of money from this, and he felt this was not proper, and he wanted to take back these rights. It's
0: very interesting that uh, what you're describing with um, Zhang Shuliang is, is this young man. who's a playboy. He's a drug addict. And yet, almost with his father's death, he's coming into his own.
1: Yeah, because suddenly he's no longer just the son of the warlord, but he's suddenly become the warlord. And as you can see, the situation is extremely complex. You've got the Japanese military, you've got the Russian military, you've got Chiang Kai-shek in the rest of China consolidating his power. So at the end of 1928, Jiang Shui Liang pledges allegiance to Chiang Kai-shek, and this is also a very important moment. So suddenly the flag of the Republic of China is flying over all the public buildings in Manchuria.
0: So he decides by pledging allegiance to nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek to put his lot in with Chiang Kai-shek.
1: Yes, and and you see he's he's facing the Russians, he's facing the Japanese, he cannot take them on on his own. So he feels this will give him protection, but also he's a patriotic Chinese and he wants to join. And this enables Chiang Kai-shek to say... You know, I'm the unifier of China, because from Guangzhou to Shenyang to Harbin are all areas now under my control. But this decision by him infuriates the Japanese army in Manchuria. It's called the Guangdong army. So they decide, they've lost patience with him. So they start to plan an annexation of all of Manchuria. Now, Zhang Xueliang has an enormous army. He has 400,000 troops under his control. And the Guangdong army are planning their annexation to start on the 18th of September 1931. And the Japanese government in Tokyo hears about this. The Japanese high command in Tokyo hears about this and sends a order not to start any military action. But somebody in the Japanese high command in Tokyo sends a telegram to the Guangdong army and says this order is on the way. So if the order arrives, they can't do it. So the Kwantung army start immediately their military action. So this is the, the, the 18th of September, 1931. So, so they go against their own government's order? They do. They do. I mean, this, is, this story is repeated often with the Japanese army in China. They do things which Tokyo does not want them to do. And that what they want to do is present them with a de facto act. So they move against the Chinese troops in Manchuria. Now, we now come to a very controversial episode. Zhang Xiu Liang decides that his army cannot defeat the Japanese. If he fights them, he will only lose and lose a lot of his troops. So he moves his army out of Manchuria. Now, historians say he ordered it. Other historians say Chiang Kai-shek ordered it, because Chiang Kai-shek did not want a war with Japan at that moment. He was not strong enough. But anyway, whoever ordered it, the, the troops leave. So this means that the Japanese are able to occupy the whole of Manchuria in, in three months. So by the, end of, by the end of 1931, they occupy the whole of Manchuria. So Zhang Xueliang and his army, they leave, and he moves to Beijing. And so he's still got his army intact. He's still the head of his army. He's still a general in the big army of Chiang Kai-shek, but he's lost his home district. Now, this is a good moment to introduce this very interesting Australian journalist called William Donald, who'd been active as a journalist in Hong Kong, and then in Shanghai, and then in Beijing. And in 1928, he resigns his job in Beijing, and he moves to Shenyang, and he becomes advisor to Zhang Xueliang. So he accompanies Zhang Xueliang for a lot of the next five years. So Zhang Xueliang moves to Beijing, and he's got this um, opium addiction. So William Donald, who is a very austere man, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke. It's very rare for children. a
0: journalist? Are you sure he was a journalist? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, William Donald says uh, you should cure yourself of this addiction. So the two men go on a tour of Europe. So during this tour, he, he cures himself of this addiction. So the two of them become very close. And then another thing that happens during his time in in Beijing is he's quite a womanizer. So one of his girlfriends is the daughter of Mussolini because she's married to the Italian minister in in Beijing.
0: It's fascinating. I think that all of these, you know, the fact that you've got this Australian journalist who then accompanies this young ex-warlord, really, at this stage. Um, So, um, yeah, all of these manifestations within the story of the life of Zhang Shu Liang, who was a warlord or son of a warlord in Manchuria. He's born on the 3rd of June, 1901. We're up to now the early 1930s, so he's actually, what he's most famous for is, which we'll get onto in a moment, is the Xi'an incident in 1936, where he actually kidnapped Chiang Kai-shek, but at the moment he's actually in the late 1920s he swears allegiance to Chiang Kai-shek, he moves his 400,000 strong army down to Beijing, uh, where he also has an affair with Edda Ciano, who was uh, formerly Edda Mussolini. But what I also find interesting with all the romance, I mean, I was reading, that quite attracted me, actually, mm-hmm. that kind of history. <laughs> and uh, she's this uh, very forthright, very uh, opinionated uh, young woman. And, of course, frightful own personal history with her father. I mean, um, in the end, her husband... Ends up being executed by Mussolini in 1944, and she later has to flee Italy. So, um, you know, this is very interesting, even though she is fascist, with a with, a, with a, a Chinese warlord, you know, and on it goes. But so, in terms of their lives in Beijing, also, what's interesting is that she persuades Jiang Shuliang to actually, I think, buy three Italian aircraft from the the Italian Air Force. So along with the affair and all that's going on in in bed and pillow talk is is three Italian aircraft, so let's not forget the politics.
1: So let's go on with Manchuria for a moment. 1932, the League of Nations sends the Lytton Lytton Commission there. Which is? The Lytton Commission is named after Lord Lytton, who is a British lord, and their mandate is to find out whether or not Manchukuo, this new country that the Japanese have created. Is it really an independent state or is it a puppet state of Japan? So it makes recommendations to the League of Nations that it is a puppet state. It's not a really independent state. And the League of Nations has this meeting in 1933 in which everyone votes in favor of this. Thailand, or Siam, as it was then, abstains. And after this decision the Japanese delegate walks out of the League of Nations and leaves the League of Nations. So that is a very significant moment toward World War II because Japan has left the, the, the global body which brings all the countries together. The, the Japanese military in North China continue their, their advances and uh, threaten China more and more. They occupy more territories. But at the same moment, Chiang Kai-shek is carrying out what he calls his annihilation campaign against the communist armies. So Chiang Kai-shek has got these two balls in the air. He's got the Japanese army encroaching more and more in China, but he knows that he can't win the war militarily against Japan. Chiang Kai-shek himself was in the Japanese military as a young man, so he knows intimately how it works. He knew, of course, that its artillery, its equipment, its aircraft were far superior to anything he had. So if if there there were pitch battles, his army would lose. So what he's trying to do is to wipe out the communists first and then decide how to deal with with the Japanese. So Zhang Liang comes back from Europe. As I say, he's still a very important person. He's in charge of this big army. He's he's in Chiang Kai-shek's military structure. And then, in the spring of 1936, he goes to North Shanxi, where the communists are based, and he meets Zhou Enlai. Now, as we know, Zhou Enlai is an extremely charming and persuasive person. And Zhou Enlai works his magic on Zhang Xiu and says, the real enemy is the Japanese. It's not us communists. We should work together to fight against the Japanese. They're the real enemy. and this has a very big effect on him. And, of course, as a patriotic Chinese, he doesn't like to see Chinese killing each other. Of course not. So we now moved to December 12, 1936. And Chiang Kai-shek has said, I need just one month more to wipe out the communist armies. So that means end of 36 or early 37, he will have accomplished his mission. So on the 12th of December, there was supposed to be the start of a a campaign against the communists. But instead of which, Jiang Xiu Liang sends his own troops to this house where Chiang Kai-shek is staying. They attack the house. They kill some of the bodyguards. Chiang Kai-shek is asleep. He jumps out of the window in his nightshirt and runs through the fields. And remember, it's December, right? it's freezing cold. So he's running away, you know, trembling with cold. And uh, Zhang Xu Liang's troops chase him, and they find him. So here's the president of China, you know, in his nightclothes, behind a rock, shivering. And they capture him, and then they bring him back. And now the question is, what's now going to happen? And this event captivated the entire world, because nobody knew what the outcome was going to be. Because Zhang Xu now had the power, he could execute Chiang Kai-shek if he wished. He had the military power to do it. So as it were, the whole world converges on Xi'an. Stalin sends a message saying, don't execute him. The nationalists and the communists should unite together to fight the Japanese. And only Chiang Kai-shek can lead this war. So if you execute Chiang Kai-shek, China has no leader to lead the war. Chiang Kai-shek's wife and ministers, they send a delegation to Xi'an, which includes this Australian journalist. And the negotiations start. What are we going to do? So after very tough and difficult negotiations. Chiang Kai-shek agrees to stop the campaign against the communists, to unite against the Japanese. And in these talks, the Australian plays a critical role, because William Donald has relations with Zhang shuliang that none of the others have. You know, he's known him for eight years. They went together to Europe. You know, they're, they're very, very close with each other. So he's able to, to speak to him on a personal level, and Zhang Shui Liang is a moral person, so I think Donald is well able to use this aspect. How can you possibly execute your military leader, the president of China? You can't do this. So that's the agreement then. So the war against the communists stops, they unite to fight against the Japanese, and Chiang Kai-shek is then restored to his position. So Chiang Kai-shek is restored to his position, he's president again, and now he's got to fly back from Xi'an to Nanjing, which is the national capital. So he walks towards the aircraft, to board the aircraft with the people who've come from Nanjing. And to the astonishment of everyone, Jiang Shui Liang also gets on the aircraft. And no one can believe this because you've led a mutiny against the president. You've kidnapped the president. He was in danger of being killed for two weeks. And you, the man responsible for this, you are getting in the plane with him. And the reason for this is that Zhang Liang himself, as I say, is, is, is a very patriotic, sort of moral person. And the phrase he used to Chiang Kai-shek at this moment is, I realize my weakness and my sin against you and the nation. So he's feeling very guilty. I mean, he's achieved his objective, he's happy about that, but he feels very angry with himself for having done this great disobedience and... and and, and putting at risk his, his president. So he's, he's like asking for forgiveness. So the plane does a stop and then arrives in Nanjing. 400,000 people greet Chiang Kai-shek on his arrival. And Zhang Xu Liang is then tried for treason and is sentenced to 10 years. So this is the start of an imprisonment that will last for more than 50 years.
0: And also, there was no guarantee that he would be even tried. I could have seen that he would just be summarily executed himself.
1: Well, it's perfectly logical to execute him. I mean, you have committed the highest treason against the head of state and your commander in the army. So Chiang Kai-shek, I think we can say, is quite humanitarian, sentences him to prison rather than executes him. But Zhang Liang is a very unusual prisoner. He's, he's popular with many people. He's popular, for example, with uh, Chiang Kai-shek's son, Jiang Jingguo, who often goes to visit him. So whilst he's in prison, he's not in the prison with the murderers and the robbers and in, in a dormitory with 20 other people. It, and
0: what happens to his wives and family at this point?
1: Well, his wife and children are allowed to go to America. And so they start a new life in America. And then a Chinese lady from a high official's family decides to share her life with him. So this is also an extraordinary story. So this lady, instead of having a nice marriage with a diplomat or general or something, she decides that she wants to, to devote herself to Zhang Xuelian. So this lady, Miss Chao, stays with him for the rest of his life. So throughout the war, wherever Zhang Kai-shek is, and remember, he moves lots of times because of the, the war with Japan. Zhang Shulang is taken with him, and is put under arrest wherever he is. And this continues during the civil war with the communists. So, of course, he, he moves even more, and he ends up in Taipei. So he's given this house in the north of Taipei, which is selected for him by Zhang Jingguo, the son. And I've been there. I and mean, it's a very nice house. It's a two-story big house, big garden, I mean, it's not like prison at all. And they have a guard post where the police stood to prevent people coming in and out. And in the house, they have a room where the police slept. So they took it in turns. And he's allowed to receive guests in the house. I mean, they have to be approved. So he spends his time there doing calligraphy, studying Chinese history, Chinese art he and his wife become very devoted Christians.
0: Yeah, I was interested to read that, that he also spends quite a bit of time in Bible study. So at what point, because you described at the outset that he has this Buddhist father, um, that he does go and join the YM, the local YMCA to play tennis. Again, uh, an interesting kind of quirky connection there. His father's concerned about the fact that his boy might be, uh, well, young man by that stage, might be open to conversion so gets him a, a quickly gets him a second wife. So is that all behind him? So do, do how does it work? I mean, you know, this wife that's gone off to America that's now his wife, his children that becomes an entire I mean, is he still in contact with them? Uh,
1: no, and his wife in America is so moved by the devotion of this other lady that she gives her approval to this. Oh. So from can we say from a Christian point of view, she approves the separation and therefore the, the, the second lady is able to marry him.
0: And of course Chiang Kai-shek is Christian.
1: Yes, now I've read some accounts that say they went to the same church in uh, Shilin, north of uh, Taipei. I, I'm not quite sure about this, but what, what you're right. Chiang Kai-shek went to the same church every Sunday with his wife. Uh, and it was a. Yes. So yes. Yes, but it was a church that was not open to the public. It was only by invitation only. So I, my instinct would be that Chiang Kai-shek would not allow Zhang Liang to be the same church as him. Uh, so I, I find that a bit implausible. So the Kuomintang keep Zhang Liang out of public view. He's not mentioned in the media. So he lives a very private life. So in 1975, Chiang Kai shek dies and his life becomes easier, but he's still under house arrest because no one can completely remove the order of the Generalissimo. You see, that was his decision. So it's only when we we're in the 1990s, when Chiang Jingguo, his son, has also died. And we're now in the era of Li Donghui. Then he becomes a free man. So in 1995, he moves with his wife to Hawaii.
0: So he's 94 years old by this time.
1: Yes, yes. So he, he's there and I think he's very happy to be out of the Chinese hothouse world, you know, because as long as he's in Taiwan, he's, he's you know, he's, he's part of Chinese history and both the Kuomintang and the, and the communists are sort of claiming him, and, and uh, I think you know he's very happy to be in Hawaii, sort of out of all this. So his wife passes away in 2000, and he passes away in 2001 at the age of 100. And the PRC often invites him to visit, but he always refuses. Um, He says, no, I've been too much involved with Chiang Kai-shek and and the Kuomintang. But I think that's not the real reason. I think it's because he knows if he goes to China, it's not just a visit. He can't just go visit his old house in Shenyang or the places he visited in Shenyang or places that he lived in in Beijing. He can't just have a a visit like you and I could have. Of course, it would become a huge propaganda thing. And the PRC regards him as, as an enormous patriot, you know, is a great hero so I think that's what he wanted to avoid. He, he would like to visit personally but he can't just have a normal visit so he never goes back to the mainland and after he dies both Jiang Zemin the Chinese president and also Chen Shui Bien, the Taiwanese president send messages of condolence and I, I cannot imagine anyone in the world who would receive messages of condolence from both those people even less so now. So that shows you the extraordinary position he has in Chinese history.
0: My thanks to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill, talking there on the extraordinary life of Zhang Shuliang, the ruler of Manchuria who kidnapped Chiang Kai-shek. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.